0: For we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I'd like you to open your Bible in the book of Romans and the third chapter, the book of Romans and the third chapter. The book of Romans, of course, is a very vital book. It's even significant where it's placed in the New Testament scriptures. In the book of Acts, we have the history of the early church. We have the history of revival. And certainly in that book, we see those who labored, turning the world upside down for God, establishing churches, the gospel spreading, And of course, the most vital question anyone could ask in the light of the book of Acts is, what was the message? What was being preached that God so honored? Here it is, the book of Romans. It is the greatest exposition of the gospel in the Bible. And how much even in evangelical circles we need to get back to the Bible. And so it is to be noted that the opening three chapters of this letter set before us man in the ruin of sin, his guilty state before God. And then against that dark background, as you come to the end of the third chapter, it is only then that Paul introduces us to that glorious doctrine that lies at the very heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. You see the light of that glorious gospel against the dark background of man in sin. How vital it is for us to recognize, especially in our day and generation, to pray, and I think the most appropriate word actually today in my judgment, we need to pray for awakening, an awakening. To see again old-fashioned conviction of sin. There's no sense of sin in our society. Of course, that's the failure of the pulpit. That's the bitter fruits of religious apostasy. And we need to see an awakening. Now, Paul's coming to the conclusion of this great exposition of man's ruin and sin in the third chapter. And we take up our reading at verse 9. And what does he have to say? What then? Are we better than They? No, in no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Then we have the scriptural quotes. And, of course, how important it is to underline that. What is being established is biblically based. That's a vital thing. So we have these words in First 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Dr. Paisley had some messages in his great evangelistic campaigns that were peculiarly blessed of God to the saving of many souls. And one of those messages was the four black nuns I heard it preached more than once. It's based on this passage. We've just read the first of them in our reading. You can take note of those that follow. Verse 11, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre with their tongues. They have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that. What thing soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. And here's the great conclusion, the sentence, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, What a blessed line. But now, now here's the gospel. Addressing our need. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his inspired and precious truth. Now. We're I'd like you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke and the chapter 18. The Gospel of Luke and the chapter 18. We're just reading a few verses here, beginning in the first nine, well known parable. Luke's Gospel, the chapter 18, commencing to read at the first nine. And he speak this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Amen. May the Lord afresh add his blessing to the reading of Holy Scripture. Let us just bow now for a moment's prayer, please. Our God and our Father, the Scriptures of truth are open before us, and we seek now afresh the gracious help of heaven. Oh, for that unction from on high. Oh, for that utterance in the Spirit. Oh, for that gracious power and blessing of the Holy Ghost we desire to be a vessel only blessed master yet with all thy wondrous power flowing through me thou canst use me yea every day and every hour use me this hour now to thy glory to the exalting of thy dear son and to the good of souls, oh, may every believing heart rejoice again in the gospel of saving grace in the one who is able to save to the very uttermost all that come unto God by him. And oh, for any among us who are yet unsaved and unconverted, we pray for their salvation. Speak, Lord, to them. The voice of the preacher cannot reach the heart. Thou art the one that can speak. Oh, speak that word of power. Awaken the soul. And oh, that they would be brought to know the Savior. We pray for his sake. Amen. What we have read, I do believe, could be well described as one of the most poignant pictures of a sinner in the inspired portrait gallery of those saved by the free grace of God. We can see in our mind's eye this publican. He's entering into the house of God. But unlike the Pharisee who would seek the prominent place, he's standing afar off. His eyes are cast down. And what a sight it is as we see him beating there on his breast and crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This prayer is undoubtedly the most fatal part of the whole scene. And I tell you, men and women, this is real prayer. There is nothing but prayer in all that he said. This is prayer bursting forth from an anguished soul. And it was truly blessed Prayer. Because as we read the words of the Savior in verse 14, he went down to his house justified. And yet this prayer could not have been more brief. Indeed, in the original, there are even fewer words than in our English translation. And yet it is truly remarkable for the fullness of its meaning. You see, in this short plea are found the essential truths that pertain to the salvation of the soul. Unlike the prayer, if we could really call it prayer, unlike the prayer of the Pharisee, the publican's prayer had nothing to do with trifles, but matters of the greatest moment. We could well say, where could you find themes more weighty, more vital to eternal issues? Here is one, and he's pleading with the greatest possible earnestness for his soul's deepest need. And what was that? Pardon for sin. What was that? Acceptance with God. Oh, do you realise that's your most vital need if you're still unsaved and unconverted? To have your sins pardoned and to have peace with God. There is, of course, an underlining depth of meaning to all of this that is so vital. Hence the reading from Romans chapter 3. Because the word of God plainly states, there is none that seeketh after God. So this seeking of the publican clearly indicates that the Holy Spirit was deeply at work in his heart For the Lord Jesus, as we read in John chapter 3, teaches us that the work of the Spirit in salvation is mysterious, inscrutable, like the blowing of the wind. And therefore it is striking and significant in every case of conversion recorded in Scripture, no direct mention is made of the Spirit. However... As the Savior clearly indicates that if the work of the Spirit is like the wind, mysterious and inscrutable, the effects of it are both felt and seen. Can we not say, is that seen not clearly here in this parable? I want to consider three simple things in that light. Here in the parable, I want you to notice in the first 13 the place that he occupied. The place that he occupied. We can simply say this it was the sinner's place. The publican had learnt what the Pharisee had never learnt that he was a sinner in need of divine mercy. Now, doubtless, the Pharisee was superior in his learning. He would have been well acquainted with every fact of Old Testament history, with every facet of the Jewish law, well first in all of the ceremonies of his religion. He was a Pharisee. But alas, he was ignorant of that which is basic to all true religion. Not in our Greek language here. The publican is saying emphatically, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And what a stranger the Pharisee was to that. My the publican was really giving this kind of emphasis. If there's not another sinner in the world, I'm one gone like the Pharisee, the public, and saw in himself nothing but sin. I believe he, he felt himself even like the beloved Apostle Paul. When he gave pen to those wonderful words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds, of whom I am chief. Oh, we should take a moment just to think of that. That beloved, saint of God, servant of Christ. Here he's penning the letter. And as he pens the words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. His heart's swelling up. And he's constrained, yes, under the power of divine inspiration. But he's constrained to add it. Of whom? I am chief. Oh, here in the parable, how evidently the public and deplore his sinfulness. You know, when we read the parables of our Lord Jesus, we should be constrained to say... Never man spake like this man. For oh, every significant gesture here reveals how deeply he felt himself a, a sinner, utterly undone. You'll notice there again in verse thirteen, standing afar off, he felt his condemnation. Unlike the Pharisee, the publican was only concerned for what he was in the sight of God. You know how often the Savior spoke of the Pharisees, that their greatest ambition was to be seen of men. But the publican is only concerned What he is in the sight of God, like the psalmist David, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And being burdened with that consciousness of his guiltiness and consumed with the thought of his own unworthiness, he stood afar off. In other words, he felt that his sins were setting him at a distance from God. And then you'll notice what great conviction he felt. He would not lift up so much as his eyes on to heaven. His sinful and guilty state was so real to him, and he felt such a deep sense of shame before God, and he was so burdened, he couldn't lift up his eyes to heaven. And then, of course, those words... He smote upon his breast. Don't they speak volumes of how he felt so much contrition? The tense in the Greek language indicates that he was doing it continually. There he is. He's in the house of God. And he's beating on that breast. And like one who indeed... Felt more than he could give expression to. And how expressive that is of grief, of anguish, of sorrow, of brokenness of heart. I think it speaks volumes of his indignation against his sin, of his utter abhorrence of himself. He's really saying, Oh, this wicked heart of mine. This vile, rebellious, obstinate heart. Oh, let me ask you, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt that sense of sin before God that you felt you could beat on your breast? How much we need to see that kind of conviction again in this province. I tell you, if ever a man took the sinner's place, the publican did. And thank God for the gospel. I've mentioned it now and I'll mention it again. What a text. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I don't know how often, especially at my age, being in the restaurant, and I have to find a certain room and up there, I can just catch, there's a door up there. I'm actually thinking of a specific place in Bridge now. And I remember how I went up there. And, and then what did it say on the door? For staff only. It wasn't the right door I was looking for at all. But it said, for staff only. And I tell you, men and women, there is only one door by which you can approach God and enjoy his favor and his pardon and his forgiveness and his salvation and all that door for sinners only. For sinners only. And if you're ever to be saved, you've got to take the sinner's place. Secondly, I want you to notice In verse 13, the plea that he offered, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Now quickly, I want you to underline a few things. How passionately he pleaded. That prayer was not only short, it's sublime, it was sincere, it was spontaneous, there's nothing artificial about it, there's nothing formal about it, there's nothing forced about it. This is the outpourings of a broken and a contrite heart. This dear man meant business with God. And I want you to notice how personally he pleaded, God be merciful to me. He's pleading as if he was the only man on the face of the earth who needed it. Such was the burden of his heart. You know, Bishop Ryle, I highly recommend Bishop Ryle in all of his writings. And I say to you parents who have children, you could do no better than use the writings of Bishop Ryle and the four gospels at your family altar. We certainly did that we began with Matthew's gospel. There's a blessed simplicity about that dear man of God, and yet he plumbs the depths. But he made this statement. He said, Fagueness and generality are the great defects of most men's religion. To get out of we and our and us onto I and my and me is a great step toward heaven. True and saving religion is personal. It's personal. It's to be able to say, like Paul again, the Son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. I know when I was converted, one of those familiar expressions that was it was used continually. When people were saved, they would have spoken of the day they are when they received the Lord Jesus as their very own and personal Savior. And I like those terms. True and saving religion is intensely personal. Now tell me, have you had personal dealings in your own conscience, in your own heart, in your own soul? Above all, I want you to notice how powerfully he pleaded. He threw himself wholly upon God's mercy. Mercy is everything to him. It's the chief thing he desires because only mercy can span that great gulf between a holy God and such a wretched sinner as himself. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I'm glad God's rich in mercy. And the mercy of God endureth forever. And there is mercy with the Lord. Mercy for such a wretched sinner as this preacher. Just two Sundays ago, in the open air in Donegadee, there was a man withstood, and I think you could nearly use the word violently. I don't mean physical violence. But such was his opposition to the preaching of the gospel, his hostility to the open-air meeting. And when I was down doing the prayer meeting in Donegal D, folks were telling me of it, and they were praying for this man. They know his name. And when the prayer meeting was over, I was saying to them, just having come down out of the pulpit and being among them, I was saying, you know, brethren and sisters, I want to tell you something of my testimony. When I was an ungodly, wicked young man, professing atheism, there was a converted Roman Catholic preaching in Bangor in the street there at the front. And all such meetings stirred my enmity and hostility. And I went to that man, and I opposed him to his face, and I'm talking to his face, shouting at him, telling him to desist. Now I know I gave him the most rough reception that he ever had in his open-air ministry. And I'm sure I was talking. I'm sure he mentioned it to other Christians. And I trust other other Christians prayed. Then God in his mercy saved me. And one Friday evening at 11 o'clock, I walked into the prayer meeting on the Ravenhill Road. As I walked in, just sitting over there on the right, I, I thought I sort of knew him. was the open-air preacher. He looked at me with astonishment. And he said, oh, I remember you. And I told him how I'd been seen. And we just stood there in front of everyone else and we hugged and we wept. There's mercy with the Lord. Mercy for the filest offender. Oh, he pleaded mercy. But the most important thing to underline is he didn't use and urge his sense of sin, his conviction, his contrition, his confession, why he should obtain mercy. Understand that. He does not say, God, be merciful to me, a penitent sinner. And he was a penitent sinner. He does not plead again, oh God be merciful to me, now I am a praying sinner. And he certainly was a praying sinner. Or I'm a reformed sinner. I'm going to do better. Going to change and turn things around in the future. He doesn't plead that. No, the publican pleads for mercy in the only way that God's pardoning mercy flows to sinners, and that's through the atoning blood of the Lamb. And you say, how do we know that? Because of the deeply significant word that is used here, that's translated, God be merciful, and it can rightfully be translated, God be propitiated. To me, the sinner. And that word is used in Hebrews 2 and 7 with reference to Christ's work of making satisfaction for sin whereby we are reconciled to God. And that word propitiation, you remember we read it in Romans chapter 3. You read it again in 1 John chapter 2. It's from the same root. And significantly it is found, rightly translated in Hebrews 9 and 5, The mercy seat. And literally, the mercy seat is the place of propitiation. You see, this helps us to appreciate what it was that the public had in view. The mercy seat covered the Ark of the Covenant containing the tables of the law. And you know, on the day of atonement, the high priest entered the holiest of all. He sprinkled a mercy seat with the atoning blood. Thus God's law that justly demanded the death of the sinner was appeased and satisfied. Can you see the mighty plea of this publican? He knows he could never make satisfaction to define justice that he could never appease God's wrath against his sin. And therefore there, with the eye of thief, it's on the blood. It's on the atoning blood of sacrifice. And you know, that's always the work of the Holy Spirit. First of all, yes, to convict of sin, but not only convict of sin, but cause the sinner to look away To look away to the sacrifice of the cross. To look to the Savior dying in the sinner's guilty room instead. To see and to look upon that shed blood of redemption. Oh, how our hymns give expression to that. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my seal no respite, know? Could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be a sin. The double cure cleanse me from its guilt and pause. I want you to notice lastly the peace that he received. Just notice those opening words of verse 14. Now, if you came to the pulpit, (coughs) you would see that I have those opening words doubly underlined, if not trebly underlined in red. In the telling of (coughs) of this parable, we can just sense, of course, in this The tremendous emphasis the Savior is giving to it. I tell you, I want you to see this, I want you to understand this, and I tell you that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Bless God for the peace that he received because there's mercy with the Lord. You think of him, the publican coming up to the temple with a heavy heart, downcast eyes. Bless God, he went down to his own house with a glad heart and gospel hope. He went up to the temple burdened with such a sense of sin and his guilt, but he went down to his house pardoned and with a sweet sense of forgiveness. He went up to the temple under defined condemnation. The Savior says he went down to his own house justified by the grace of God. I tell you this, the Savior says. That speaks to me of the witness of the Lord. You know, when I came to the Ravenhill Free Presbyterian Church and under the faithful, fervent gospel preaching of Dr. Paisley... There was so much that I learned though being unsaved, unconverted and dark as night in so many ways but there were certain things that I picked up on. For example, that first night I understood that there were people in that old Ravenhill church who were saved I didn't understand why or how or what that meant. I didn't know and it puzzled me that they were evidently so happy going into church, sighing as I'd never heard any singing in my life. But I learned, yes, there are those here and they're saved, whatever that means. But I also learned that first night that there are those who are not saved and I'm one of them. First night. I felt that. Oh, there are people here and they're saved, whatever it means, but there are people here evidently are not, and I'm one of them. And then, of course, from the darkness of my background and my own belief, one of the things that I picked up was that the preacher kept giving emphasis to this. You can be saved, and then this, and you can know it. Well, you see, I had never believed you could know anything about God if there was a God at all. And that note of certainty and that note of assurance, and I want to tell you, from the night I was saved, that was blessed assurance. The devil attacked my soul. And oh, I rejoiced to know that not only Can you be saved, but you can know that you're saved. You see, whom he justifies, he imparts a sweet sense of acceptance. The old hymn, oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. To every believer, the promise of God. The filest offender who truly believes. That moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And those who are justified by faith, this book says, have peace With God. He went down to his house justified. Our service is over. In a few moments, you'll believe him. Now tell me, are you saved? Did you come into this house unsaved? Are you going to leave unsaved? Have you come in and sat among us and we're so happy that you're here? But you're under condemnation, sin's condemnation, the curse of a broken law. Indeed, the Savior says, the wrath of God abides upon you already. Are you going to leave as you came? Will you not leave pardoned, freely forgiven, justified by the grace of God, rejoicing and trusting in the Savior? You know, this is a precious text. And indeed, for so many, over the centuries, many eminent saints of God have died with this text on their lips. For example, that great Christian statesman, William Wilberforce, he is known, of course, because he bears the title of the Liberator of the Slaves. This is what he said on his deathbed. With regard to myself, I have nothing to wage but the poor publican's plea. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, will you come to Christ? Will you accept him? Will you put your trust in his blood? Will you go down tonight to your own house? justified. May the Lord be pleased to bless his word afresh to every heart.